seated today. Amen. Amen. Today's message is entitled, A Winning Church. Second part of our series, Losing is Not an Option. And winning the winning church. I did not have an opportunity to watch much of the NFL draft this week, but I did see a few excerpts and few uh, clippings from the replays. And I was particularly struck by one particular young man who was drafted. I don't know what team it was for. But uh, his name is Mark Ingram, and he played running back for the University of Alabama. Two years ago, he was the recipient of the Heisman Trophy. And when he was uh, drafted this year, uh, they showed him receiving his uh, cap, baseball cap, representing the team that he was drafted for. And then they uh, showed him uh, celebrating, walking down the alley. He encounters a, a, a journalist, a reporter there. And they ask him the question. They say, well, what is it that you want to say to your dad? And when the reporter asked him what it was he wanted to say to his dad, immediately you could see him become emotional about the question. He took his cap off and he turned his head away from the camera. And he wiped the tears from his eye with the sleeve of his jacket. And as he began to say uh, through a trembling voice, he said to his dad, I love you. And I miss you, man. No, he said, I miss you, dog. And then he said this, we did it. We did it. And what struck me about this was that his journey to the NFL draft did not begin on draft week. It did not begin the week before. It did not begin the year before. In other words, it had started a long time ago. And there had been a lot of work. There had been a lot of effort. There had been a lot of praying. There had been a lot of planning. There had been... A lot of hopes and dreams invested in the fact that I want to play in the National Football League. And it's at this point where all of that came together. In other words, all that has planned and strategized and uh, worked for had come to pass. And he had experienced in his life, at this point, a victory. Now, many of us sitting in here know, know what it means to have a dream, know what it means to have a goal. Many of us in here have the, an entrepreneurial spirit. Entrepreneurial spirit doesn't mean you have a business, but it means that you have the type of spirit that wants to do more than what you're doing. You want to offer more to, to other people. You want to make a difference. You want your gifts not only to uh, be localized in your personal experience, but you want your gifts to touch and reach others who you don't know, who you never see. And so uh, in his book entitled E-Myth, Michael Gerber asserts that every successful person or entrepreneur needs what is called a strategic objective, a strategic objective. Everybody say that with me, strategic objective. Now, this is what a strategic objective is. It is a very clear statement um, of what your business or your, uh, your, what you're engaged in has to ultimately do for you to achieve your primary aim. It is a statement. He says, if you want to be successful, if you want to be successful, you need to have a strategic objective. And the strategic objective is a very clear, somebody say clear. It's a clear statement of what your business has to do for you in order for you to achieve your primary aim. So as when I read that, I said primary aim. So I, I say, well, what is the primary aim? The primary aim uh, uh, can be uh, defined or can be understood by asking three questions. You want to know what your primary aim is? You ask these three questions. 
what do I value most? Secondly, what kind of life do I want? And third, what do I want my life to look like and feel like? In other words, it's this, who do I wish to be? Who do I wish to be? Now, to help, help you understand, to help you understand this whole issue of primary aim, I'd like for you to uh, let your imagination uh, go to work for a moment. And imagine that you are about to attend one of the most important occasions in your life. It will be held in a room sufficiently large enough to seat all of your friends and families, all your business associates, and anyone and everyone who is important to you. Can you imagine that in your mind? Can you see the walls of the room draped with elegant uh, tapestries? The lighting is soft, the music is, uh, is, is subdued, and the light casts a warm glow upon those who are there. There's chatter in the room as people are talking to one another as they're waiting for this event to begin. At the front of the room, there's a dais. And on the dais, there's a large, beautifully decorated table with gorgeous floral arrangements. And in the middle of the table, right there in the center of the room, there's an object that everyone's attention is focused on. There's a box sitting on the table, a large, shining box. And in the box is you. You're in the box, stiff as a board. You're done. You're lying in the box. See yourself lying in the box. And there's not a dry eye in the room. Now from the four corners of that room comes a tape recording of your voice. Can you hear you yourself speaking? And you are addressing your guests. And you're telling them your life story. That is your primary aim. Your primary aim is this. What would you like to be able to say about your life? after it's too late to do anything about it. That's your primary aim. Our primary aim is what defines us. It's stuff and statements like this. I want to accumulate X amount of dollars in my life. I want to work in this type of industry. I want to marry this type of person and have this type of impact on my family and children. Jesus is saying to us in this chapter, the last words he says to his disciples before he ascends in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is saying that it's okay to have extraordinary dreams and goals, but every disciple should have extraordinary dreams and goals that include a spiritual dimension. No person should live his or her life merely collecting deeds to properties, titles to cars, earning academic and honorary degrees without worshiping God and serving others. In other words, what he's saying, a selfish church cannot be a winning church. A winning church is about God and others. A distracted church cannot be a winning church. An unfocused church cannot be a winning church. A winning church has one mission and one mission only. In other words, in life, if you have multiple missions, it's very unlikely that you will be successful at any of them. Mission must be focused. And the church has only one mission, and it is clearly communicated in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in this section. 
And any believer who does not participate, somebody say participate. It's easy to spectate and to analyze and to investigate, but any believer who does not participate in the mission of Jesus Christ and in the mission of the church is off mission. Now, brothers and sisters, there will be distractions. There will be difficulties. There will be diversions. The devil will attempt to foster an atmosphere and an attitude of defeat. I would much rather be in an atmosphere of defeat than to have an attitude of defeat. You see, if you have an, an atmosphere of defeat, you can overcome what's in the atmosphere. Am I right about that? Yeah, you can overcome what's in the atmosphere. But if you have an attitude of defeat, you've already lost before you've even gotten started. There's a language of victory. There's a way victory looks. There's a way victory walks. There's a way victory interacts with other people. And in order for us to be a winning church, we must also take on the personality and the attitude and the attributes that are associated with victory. It does not matter what your venue or what your profession is. All victorious people act alike. I wish I had somebody say amen. In other words, there are certain characteristics that define victory. And Jesus tells us in this chapter at the end what it means to be a winning church. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples, that's not important, how many of them there were, went to Galilee. The place is not important. In other words, the who is not important. The place is not important. They went to a mountain. It, they could have been on the valley. They could have been at the mall. That's not what's important. Where they are is not what's important. But it says they were there. They went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, that is important. Amen. It doesn't matter who you are. does not matter where you're going. does not matter what you do when you get there. But what God is going to be looking for is whether or not we are doing what he has told us to do. Therefore, for your worksheets, a winning church is an obedient church. I wish I had somebody who would say amen to that, but a, a, a winning church is an obedient church. A, a winning church, it does not matter what your location is. Amen. It does not matter what, what block you're on. I wish I had somebody who were feeling me right now. But you see, I'm the winning church is about doing what it is God wants you to do, irrespective of where you are and who is with you. And Jesus asked the question to his disciples. He said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say. In other words, Jesus is expecting his church to be an obedient church. Do you remember? You remember the first king of Israel, the person who was anointed by Samuel the prophet. His name was Saul. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was anointed to be the first king. And so Saul uh, came from nowhere to somewhere by the help of God. Amen. If you ever get somewhere, it's not on your own. It's because God has grace. Yeah, God just, it's just his grace. He just punched your ticket, didn't ask you for it. Has God ever promoted you and didn't ask your permission? Has God ever blessed you, didn't ask you, could he do it? I'm just trying to tell you how God works. If you get somewhere that you haven't ever been, that you've always wanted to go, it's because God 
has been good. And here is Saul coming from nowhere, God making him king of Israel, God blessing him, lifting him up. And so what God does with Saul is, is gives him very specific instructions as to how he's supposed to go about engaging in this battle that he is getting ready to engage in. God told him, so what I want you to do, I want you to kill all the Amalekites. I want you to kill all the sheep. I want you to kill all the ox. I want you to kill all the donkeys. I don't want you to spare anything. And he said, what I, what I want you to do, don't sacrifice a thing. You wait until Samuel the prophet gets there and he will offer the sacrifice. Well, Saul got tired of waiting because the preacher was late. The preacher was late again. And so Saul got tired and he decided that he would offer the sacrifices himself. So when Saul rolled up on him, he said, man, what's going on here? Samuel said, well, I just offered some few sheep. But the Saul, Saul then was interrupted by Samuel. And Samuel says this very powerful statement to Saul. He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of lambs. And a lot of times, the only thing we have to offer God is how much time we have sacrificed, how much money we have sacrificed, how much I have done, how much I have put in. But God doesn't want to know how much you put in. God doesn't want to know how much time you've invested. God wants to know, have you done what I have? I wish I had some help. Have you done what I have asked you to do? I hear in the church all the time and every place else on television, in the movies, people saying it's not about us, it's not about me. But if we're really honest, most of the time it really is about us. If we stop the train if people don't give us a little recognition, a little credit. If, and, so, and so what the Bible is saying here and what God is saying here, he said we must be honest with ourselves and we must put what God has told us to do at the forefront. In other words, if we're honest most of the time, more times than not, it is more about me or you than it is about Jesus. Y'all quiet on me, but I know I'm right. And you see, just like, just like birtherism, birth, y'all heard of the birthers? Don't you know the birthers, birtherism is not about a birth certificate? And come on now, being a birtherism, it's not about a birth certificate. It's about somebody else's agenda that is hidden behind a birth certificate. In other words, it is, it is a personal agenda hidden behind a supposed corporate interest. But don't you know that most intelligent people in the United States of America could care less whether the president was born in Hawaii, Pompano, Palatka, Apopka? All we want him to do is to engage himself intelligently in the Oval Office and make a difference domestically and internationally. And we're arguing about a birth certificate. And that's what happens when you get off mission. It happens in the church that we forget about what God has called us to do. We forget about what he has commanded us to do. And therefore, we get off mission. But obedience is the path to receiving a blessing and being a blessing. Not only is a winning church an obedient church, but a winning church is a church that worships. A winning church worships. Verse 17, it says, when they saw him... They worshiped him, but some doubted. They, when they saw him, they worshiped him. And it's interesting. I don't even know why God would inspire John to write it like this. He said, but when they, they saw him, they worshiped him, and some, right there at the same place on the mountain, all of them seeing Jesus right there, hands scarred from the nail prints, got a, a, a scar on his side, thorn crowns, uh, uh, 
uh, scars still on, but some doubted. Now, John says this, the hour is come and is already here when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and, I wish I had some Bible people, and in truth because the Father is doing what? Seeking those who worship him in that manner. Now, worship, listen, in this, in this, in this, in this text, in this place, you see, it would have been difficult to do what God wanted them to do in this place at this time because worship and doubt don't mix very well. Yeah, the doubt is an impediment because worship is not an end. What's supposed to happen in worship is I get refocused, I get re-energized, I get recharged, I get re-cleansed, I get re-sanctified in order for me to proceed beyond the worship experience and do something meaningful that's related to the mission that God has already assigned me. I cannot die and look God in the eye and the only thing I have to tell God is that I spent my life raising my hands and singing songs and quoting scripture. God wants me to respond to what has happened in worship and make a difference in a world that knows very little about him. Yes, 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 yes. And so, and so it says some worship and some doubt it. We cannot worship. You see, we cannot worship God well if our heart is full of doubt because doubt breeds bitterness and malice and deception and hypocrisy. And if we come to church, somebody say to church. Yeah, I'm just using that because you don't really come to church because you are the church. But since we talk in that kind of language, when we come to church and when we come to church and our heart has bitterness in it and our heart has anger in it and there's a lack of trust between members and members and members and leadership, we can say we're worshiping, we can look like we're worshiping, but there's something deficient in our worship. That's why the psalmist said, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Oh, and, so, and so here, the, the Bible is teaching us that we have to worship God if we want to be a winning church, but we have to have a clean heart in order to worship God. Am I right about that? You see, Paul tried to emphasize the same thing to the church at Rome, powerful church, large church, important church, right there at the center of the empire. Paul says, I beseech you, I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, what he's saying, if you want to authentically and impactfully worship God, he says, your, your offering of your time, that's good. That's the bulls back in the old days. The offering of your money, that's good. That's all of your treasure in the old days. But God is not interested in just your time. I wish I, God is not interested in how big of a check you can write. What God wants to know is whether or not you will submit your body as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. What does that mean? That means God I place no limitations on how you can use me. God, I have not predetermined. I have not pre-assigned. In other words, all I want, God, is for you to use me. Use me any way, any time, any manner that you want to use me. God, I am a living sacrifice. I don't just sacrifice time. I don't just sacrifice money. I am the sacrifice, God, that I want you to be 
pleased with. God, I don't want you to just be pleased with my check, pleased with my time. I want you to be pleased with my life. Paul said, don't conform to this world. In order to be a living sacrifice, your mind has to change. You got to stop talking my time, my money, my car, my house, my this, my that. A living sacrifice no longer belongs to him or herself. I'm living for God. Worship, somebody say worship, must glorify God. And at the same time, draw others to Christ. Now, this is key. Worship must glorify God, but at the same time is to draw others who don't know God to God. Let me see if I can make this clear. In other words, authentic worship ought not just attract other worshipers. Is the, if the strength of your church is your power to attract other people who worship, your church is off mission and your church is not strong. Your church is strong when you have power to confront the powers of darkness and to dare darkness to try to put the light out. And when men and women who love darkness more than light will enter into the worshiping atmosphere of the believer and allow the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to engage them such that they make a decision that my life can no longer be lived in darkness now that I have been in the light. Too many of our churches have become weak and impotent because we are more proficient at attracting those who are already engaged than we are at attracting those that God has assigned us to. And so, we must do like I do sometimes. There's a restaurant, Brother Jonathan, in Savannah, Georgia, on Jones Street in Savannah, Georgia. Now, in my opinion, it is one of the best restaurants in the United States of America. It has the best, it has Southern cuisine. Not gonna get any spaghetti or linguine there. It's fried chicken and black eyed peas and collard greens and cornbread and mashed potatoes and meatloaf, yes. And candy yams and turnip greens and sweet, sweet, super sweet iced tea. One of the for your money, it's one of the best restaurants. And anybody I know who is going to or through or near Savannah, I let them know you must stop. You must pull off and go to this restaurant on Jones Street. Not five star. Doesn't have any stars. It doesn't. Not impressive. As a matter of fact, if you didn't know it was there, if you didn't know it was there, you would pass right by it. But I dare you to go in, put your feet under the table, and sit there at the table because I am confident that your testimony will be the same as my testimony if you try what they're serving there. You see, my brothers and sisters, that's the way a church is supposed to work. I wouldn't go to a church 
church I couldn't brag on. I don't want to be a part of a church that I couldn't tell somebody that lives in the neighborhood, that's swinging by, that's coming through. I would not want to be associated, but if it is working for you, if God is blessing you, if God is serving up some good spiritual food, you ought to be willing to let somebody know what God is doing. Then a winning church develops spiritually. Verse 18 and 19, look at Jesus. Jesus says this. You want to underline this in your Bible. I don't, we haven't figured out how to underline on these blackberries and iPhones yet. Somebody got an app that does that. Let me know. But it says this. Look at this. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Then he says, because all authority has been given to me, look at this, now you go. Now he doesn't say what he's going to do. He says, because authority has been given to me, you go and make disciples, what? Of all what? Nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A winning church, first of all, does nothing in its own authority. Y'all quiet, but does nothing in his own authority. It acts on the authority of Jesus Christ. Last night, my daughter, she was reviewing an application for employment, had a line on the application that said, asked the question, are you over the age of 18? It said, if not, you may be required to provide authorization to work here. I said, isn't that something? You may be required to provide authorization. What, what are they saying? First of all, you got to be approved to work here. Now, that's one thing you're talking about McDonald's, but don't you know that's the same thing in the church? That God must authorize us to serve. In other words, serving God is not something we should take lightly. We are serving God because he has provided for us the authorization. In other words, Jesus said this, when you see me doing these works, it's not me, but it's the Father that is working. In other words, he's authorized me to do what I'm doing. But not only that, uh, a winning church not only gets authorization to work, but a winning church must get authorization to work from the right person. You must get it from Jesus. Now, once authorized, once you're authorized, then you don't choose what you're going to do. Now, let me just make it plain. When my, if, if my daughter gets the job, she can't go to the job and then raise her hand and tell them what she's going to do now that she's there. 
In other words, it has already been predetermined. The reason the applications have been placed in public is because the job has already been predetermined. They're just looking for whoever is going to be eligible, willing, and qualified to fill it. Are y'all with me? In other words, when we come into ministry and into the church, we don't make up jobs in the church. In other words, it's already been predetermined what it is the church is supposed to be doing. And we become ineffective when we've got to sit around and invent stuff to do when it's already told us in the Bible what are the things we are supposed to be doing. And guess what? You don't have to go to no seminars. You don't have to get no workshops. You don't have to get no super-duper training. All you have to do first is read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. And it will be clear to you what the mission of church is. Now, what are we supposed to be doing? Four things. Going, going to all the world. It's not enough to sit on the corner and say, y'all come. Going. Secondly, we're supposed to be making. We're supposed to be making disciples. Somebody say making disciples. Disciples are not automatic. Most people in church are not disciples. And the reason they're not disciples is not their fault. The reason they're not disciples is because those who are disciples are satisfied not making disciples. Because making disciple is costly. Making a disciple means I must commit myself to another life that's unpredictable, undependable, that does not know what I'm trying to do, doesn't know the value, and yet I must commit myself for an extended period of time until this person begins to understand the value of spiritual discipline, the value of prayer, the value of study, the value of worship, the value of giving, and the value of service. And so Jesus called us to make disciples. Then he said, baptize. One of the things you rarely hear in a church is anybody object because no one is being baptized. Because we have learned to focus on the wrong things. You see, a church is supposed to be, how do you know a church is successful? A successful church, somebody ought to be getting saved. I wish I had some. Uh, yeah, I, somebody, somebody ought to be. Somebody say ought to be. You think Jesus died on the cross so that we can go to the fair on, on, a, on a field trip? Jesus died on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven, so that I might recognize that I'm living in darkness and that I need the light of God in my life. And a church is winning when people are coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord. And then we're supposed to be teaching. And that's why we have growth groups. We have growth groups because that's a forum to teach where we sit around the Word of God together and we discuss the Word of God together and we discuss our lives together. You see, because you can't grow unless you will talk about the stuff that's dead. And then you apply the Word of God to it and what you'll discover is that God will begin to bring life, life out of the deadness. And then finally, a winning church believes that God is with them. This verse does not mean God, Jesus is your running buddy. Most of us want company. Jesus wants partnership. Most of us want somebody to be with us. 
to hear our stories. Most of us are happy to use Jesus just as a sounding board. All we got to tell, all of our prayers are basically the same thing. Lord, help me out of this. But that's not what Jesus is looking for. Jesus is looking for a partner. The Bible says we are laborers together. Are y'all with me? With God. And so here, when Jesus says, I am with you, that doesn't just mean that he's with you physically everywhere you go. He says, I'm with you. He says, I am with you. All understand? He said, he said I'm, I'm with you. Let, let me see, see if I can explain this. When I came to Florida, I, I ran into a term that I had not previously been um, familiar with. I would ask people, how, how you doing, couples? How, how you doing? How long you been married? They was, and they would say this to me. They said, well, we've been married five years, but we've been together for 15. We've been married five years, but we've been together for, you know, eight. I said, been together. Yeah, well, I've been with him for X amount. I've been with him. Okay. Now, you know what that means? That doesn't mean you're always in the same place together. Doesn't mean you're always in the same room together, same house together, same car together, but I'm with you. You know what it means? It means I got your back. It means that it means that I it means that what you're engaged in, I'm gonna be there to support you. If you're doing kingdom work, I'm right there with you. And so what Jesus is saying is this. He says, you go and teach, you baptize, you make disciples, and guess what? I'm gonna be what? With you. I'm gonna be on your side. I'm gonna have your back. And guess what? I'm gonna do things in your life that normally would not be done in your life because. I am with you. You see, when Jesus says he's with you, that's just like, that's just like, let me just put it, let me just put it in the finance world. Say you are a business person and, um, and, and, and suppose, uh, I, 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 a few, a few years ago, I might've used Donald Trump, but I can't use him no more. You don't want him to be with you, but, but, but just, but just suppose, just suppose Oprah, just suppose Oprah says, listen, listen, Sister Gwen, I'm with you. Whatever your dream, whatever it is you want to do, I'm with you. You don't want Oprah to be sitting in your living room. What you want to tell Oprah is that, Oprah, here's my business plan. Oprah, here's my dream. And Oprah, if Oprah is with you, she doesn't get on a plane and come down and sit and listen to you talk about what you're going to do. Oprah will then pull her resources together. What she will do, pull the backing of her influence together in order for you to get done what it is. Now, what Jesus is saying, when you decide that you're going to obey him and do what he has called you to do, he says, I am with you. Well, my money is running low, God. Doesn't matter. I am with you. I'm sick in my body. I don't believe I can make it. Don't worry about it. I am with you. God, while I'm trying to counsel somebody else, my own life is falling apart. That's all right. Stop watching the clock. You're on a winning church. You're going to win. I'm telling you because I am with you. I'm with you. And you know what? Because he is with us, we are guaranteed victory. Let me tell you something about this being, him being with us. You got to trust him. Can I get some help? You got to trust him. You've got to trust him. That's what the Bible tries to tell you over and over and over. You've got to trust him. I know you're smart. 
I know you went to the University of Florida and this University of South Florida and Hampton University and Bethune and fam, I know you got a high school degree and I know you got an AA degree and I know you got a bachelor's and a master's and a doctorate and some honorary degrees. I know you got some certificates and I know you got experiences, but let me tell you something. When you get ready to do God's work every now and then, your certificate won't do nothing but hang there on the wall. Your degrees won't do anything but hang there on the wall. Sometimes you need something other than a paper credential. I need somebody that can open up a door. Somebody that can speak to a storm. I need somebody who can roll a stone away. And Jesus said, I'm with you. I'm with you. You see, I used to be on the other side of this argument. Because in my natural self, I'm a rationalist. I love reason and logic and order. But God allowed me to live long enough to where my back gets against the wall. And I don't have no more chips that I can pull out but my faith and trust him. And let me tell you something about it. Grandmother used to sing, if you trust and never doubt, he will surely bring you out. Grandma used to say, no money in that little pocketbook, nothing but a dirty handkerchief and some peppermint. But grandmother would say, bills high as the chimney. She would say, washing the clothes on a rug board, no running water, no electricity. And she got the nerve to sing, I will trust in the Lord until I die because he will. He will. Won't you stand on your feet?